Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello. Today, I am joined by James Murphy, co-author with Graham Garrard of How to Think Politically, Sages, Scholars, and Statesmen Whose Ideas Have Shaped the World. Welcome, James. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I mean, your, your book, it's had a hearty endorsement from Steven Pinker. It's, it's been out for a while, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you please give us a bit of your background and the background to your interest in the subject of political thought? Sure, sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a professor of government at Dartmouth College in the United States. Um, and uh, ever since I was in high school, I've been fascinated by uh, issues in political philosophy. So I studied both political science and philosophy, both as an undergraduate uh, and in graduate school. And I've been teaching political philosophy at Dartmouth since 1990. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, you're, you have uh, an interest in Aristotle. That, that's kind of one of your um, specialties, is it? That's right. Yeah. I, I, I broadly specialize in ancient Greek uh, political philosophy, so especially uh, Aristotle. Right, right. And then I see uh, Graham uh, Gard. He has... Uh, scholarship, let's say, a previous scholarship on the counter-enlightenment as well. So it's kind of like, uh, I suppose, is it that he handles the modern period and you handle the uh, ancients and medieval period? Is is that right? That's that's broadly right. Um, That's how we sort of thought of dividing up the labor. But because the book has so many more modern and contemporary thinkers, uh, I've had to uh, come out of my comfort zone and write several chapters on modern and contemporary thinkers as well. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, can you, uh, what's the reason you wrote the book and, and who is your intended audience and why did you write it in this way? Well, um, it's a book that's meant to make accessible um, the, the greatest thoughts uh, ever written about politics. 
And in the original texts, often these thinkers, the, the access to their thought is not, is not easy. They come from many different countries, uh, many different times and places. So uh, understanding what they're trying to say can be a challenge and difficult because of the historical, cultural barriers. Um, so we thought it'd be quite useful to um, make all this great treasury of wonderful insights more available in plain English to readers who are interested in politics. Right, right. So is it um, more for like, uh, you know, students entering into politics, general readership? Uh, I'd say both. It's, it, I, I use it in my classes uh, in political mm-hmm. philosophy. So it's a good student introduction to political philosophy, but it's also um, quite enjoyable and readable for any curious um, adult who just wants to uh, learn more about the uh, theories behind politics. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how much um, you uh, have read or or are um, cognizant of the work of Camille Paglia, but but I, I know in her um, in, in in her encomiums or or at least in her battles with the um, with the postmodernists of the nineteen nineties in particular, she she used to lament the passing of these kind of great books, which, you know, which was so important to her own education in the fifties and sixties, these, these books that covered the whole history of Western civilization that a general reader could read and, and gave you this amazing perspective that a lot of the specialization and, and jargon filled, um, scholarship, uh, was totally missing. And to me, it sounds, it, I mean, your book sort of fits into that. These, these kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, broad sweeps that, that, that gives you this, um, uh, th- this wide perspective uh, on, uh, on knowledge in that way instead of uh, being so specialized. It, it is, was that uh, part of your thinking at all? Oh, sir, oh, certainly, yeah. We want to rescue these major figures, um, not just out of historical curiosity, but because um, they were generally geniuses and the questions that they addressed are of permanent importance. That is, right. uh, these thinkers are addressing the same issues that bedevil and challenge our politics today. So we want to give readers a, a, a deeper and broader perspective on the politics of our own time. Uh, I, I think that's a very important phrase um, you put there, pr- permanent importance, because um, I don't, you know, I I don't see the book as being particularly ideological, um, but but there certainly is, um, but certainly the idea that there exists a permanent importance, you know, is quite different from the prevailing postmodernism, where there's no truth and everything is contextualized and socially constructed and contingent. Um, it it really is it. it it really provides a different perspective from that. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yes, you put it very well. I mean, um, that's right. We we think that uh, human politics has had many common features, both over time and across different societies and nations, and that it's important to uh, identify and address those common features, those permanent questions that face all political societies. Yeah, and it's um, interesting the way you... Um, title the chapters uh, i mean you have 30 chapters and 
it's Con Confucius, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Alfarbi, Maimonides, Aquinas, etc., Machiavelli, and and up to the present day. Um, and but with each of them, you you give them a sort of archetypical uh, feature. Confucius the sage, Plato the dramatist, Aristotle the biologist, Augustine the realist, uh, Nietzsche the psychologist, Gandhi the warrior, etc. Um, was any of uh, you know a Jungian sort of framework a uh, part of your thinking? Yeah, yeah, in a way, that's a lesson I hadn't thought of in terms of, of Carl Jung and his notion of archetypes, but. But yeah, in a way, that's right. We we thought of these of these titles, these epithets, uh, as a way to capture in one word, sort of the the, the basic stance of these various thinkers. Um, I wanted to clarify one thing you said that I I, I need to clarify a little. As you talked about a Western civilization, um, but our book, of course, extends beyond the West. Right? We include Islamic thinkers, Chinese thinkers. Uh, Gandhi from India, so we we include thinkers from around the globe, not not merely uh, Western thinkers. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to comment on that because it's uh, very rare. And in fact, I don't, I I can't think of a book like this that you know ha starts off with Confucius rather than Plato. Usually, you know, books on political philosophy and political thinking start with Plato, and but you start with Confucius, and then. I was very surprised to see Al Farabi and Maimonides included. Uh, those usually are, um, you know, more specialist um, people uh, looking at. I mean, Leo Strauss and, and those people looked at them quite a bit because of their interest in Plato. And then, I mean, then you have Aquinas and uh, uh, yeah, so uh, very. Um, so so you've you've got the you you take seriously the medieval religious uh, thought. As part of political thinking, so it's I, I and then not only that, uh, as you said, um, Gandhi. But what very much surprised me was seeing a Sayyid Qutb uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, I thought that was um, a very, very interesting, you know, cho uh, choice. Um, you want to expand on that? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, I wrote I wrote the chapters on the Islamic thinkers, right, Al Farabi and Kitab. Um and it's, it's, it's funny that, you know, if, if this book had been written 100 years ago, people would think that Islamic thinkers like Al-Farabi were totally irrelevant to modern society, as yeah. we thought this was the age of progress and rationalism and the spread of Western democracy. Um, but of course, now with the rise of militant Islam, we're aware that these questions of religion and politics and the challenge that Islam poses to modern politics uh, is a pressing and urgent matter. So the Islamic thinkers like Al Farabi and then the the the, the modern the, the contemporary uh, Kitab uh, are of essential importance for understanding politics in the world today. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I I think this is the first um, political theory book I've seen that you know general that includes Said Qutb in it. So that's, uh, I, I think, definitely pioneering. I mean, the, you know, you might find Gandhi here and there, and uh, but um, yeah, so it's you're breaking ground, I would say, um, <laughs> from what I see. Uh, uh, so, I mean, now to condense the history of political thought to 30 thinkers, obviously, 
you have to cut out a lot of important people. Um, is there anybody on the cutting room floor that you <laughs> wish you could have um, included? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Sure. We couldn't, we couldn't, uh, treat, uh, everyone. Um, you know, yeah, we did, we didn't treat, um, well, just, just going from the, from the, um, medieval period. Um, I had drafted a chapter on Marsilius of Padua, <laughs> okay, a medieval Aristotelian who's considered kind of a, a prophet of, uh, of modern secular politics a uh, fascinating figure, um, but um, but he didn't make the cut. Um, certainly, there are cont- contemp- many contemporary thinkers. We couldn't in- include everyone. Um, for example, um, Isaiah Berlin or right. Michael Oshot. Would... Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's some Im- important contemporary political theorists that we 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 just couldn't include everyone. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask about Berlin because just as you talked about um, the Islamic world and Islamic thinking, uh, certainly nationalism uh, has has come back with a with a vengeance. I think uh, it certainly seems so. Although you know I, Isaiah Berlin's classic essay on it was in seventy two. So so I'm um, but uh, I I see if I um, sort of challenge you a bit uh, I. I see Martha Nussbaum here uh, and Arnie Ness. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his surname correctly. That's right. right. Yeah, Ness. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, uh, and I, I'm very surprised. I don't see Foucault. I mean, Saint <laughs> Foucault. I mean, he, he, he is all. He. I mean, the university is basically an arm of Foucauldian thought these days. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, that's a, that's a I, little. There's a little bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, he's, yeah. he's very popular, very trendy. Days. Yeah. Um, I, 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 is there a? Was that done on purpose or what? Um. Well, I mean, it, we did. We did talk about. Foucault and, and, and many other thinkers as possibilities. Um, and, um, you know, why he didn't make the cut, um, uh, you know, is a good question. I guess Graham and I think that um, his theory of power is more of a sociological, more of a, it's more of a sociological theory than a political theory per se. Mm-hmm. Um, his notion is that power permeates all human relationships. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a theory of human society much more broadly than, than human politics per se. Yeah. That, that's a very interesting point. Uh, Cause it is a question I was going to ask in term because um, yeah, you know, Foucault, you know, it's, although he, he didn't create the phrase, the personal is political, but it, it, it definitely gels with that idea of the sixties radicals and stuff. And, and then, um, yeah, but but you're right that his idea of power and relations goes well beyond, you know, government and elections and and state power and kings and all that stuff. Uh, and it gets into discourse. So so that's interesting that you make that distinction. So that brings me to one of the fundamental questions I was going to ask: is what does thinking politically mean? <laughs> but that that's a great question. You know, I I was not that happy with the with the title. My, I mean, my, <laughs> my my preferred title was how to think about politics. 
Right. Um, because to my ear, the phrase thinking politically sounds too Machiavellian. That's right. like thinking strategically. You know, if, if, if you say mm-hmm. to someone, you know, you should think politically, that means you should think in a way this, that you can manipulate other people to, to get your, your goals, you know, right. To, to, to realize your aims kind of a devious way. So I worry that thinking politically could have that kind of instrumental Machiavellian flavor, but, um, Graham won that argument. <laughs> no, no, we, we authors. This is one of the, maybe one of the secrets about publishing. This authors don't have final say over okay. titles, so right? The, so the publisher. That's right. The publisher gets inside the title. So, um, right, right. Because, but I'll, I'll tell you when I saw it though, it brought to mind Bernard Crick, um, in defense of politics, and um, right. his view of politics is a very specific Aristotelian view. Yeah. Of yeah. politics, you know, and and I thought that perhaps that's what you were alluding to, um, that when Aristotle talks about um, politics, he means a very very definite um, uh, way of, I suppose, organizing a community and um, discussion and debate and and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it's well, well said. Yeah, I, I like the Crick book very much, and so does Graham, and. Um, and I think personally, we both uh, are, are quite sympathetic to Crick's understanding of politics, which, as you say, is kind of Aristotelian. It's the view that politics is the activity of resolving disputes by means of arguments rather than by means of force or fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if, if that's what Aristotle means by politics, and I think that's what, what Crick means, then, yeah, I think personally, uh, Graham and I uh, favor that conception of politics. Um, but... In our book, we, of course, are trying to cover a, a much wider range of views of politics than that Aristotelian, Crickian view. Um, so we yeah. consider lots of other different kinds of understandings of politics. But I'm personally quite sympathetic to that view that you, you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. And um, so so let me just get to this distinction because uh, because the Foucauldian understanding is, is so pervasive and, you know, and, and so many people talk about things like governmentality and, and stuff. Uh, so, you, uh, and your preferred title was how to think about politics. So how does your definition or understanding of politics differ from this more discursive uh, power-based, sociological power-based understanding of politics? Okay, well, big questions. <laughs> you know, I'm certainly, as a specialist in ancient Greek philosophy, I'm maybe not the best person to ask about Foucault, but yeah. I did study, you know, some of his books in, in grad school. Um, By the way, okay, so th- this is a bit of a, a sidetrack, but it's very interesting because you know Foucault very much uh, in his um, in his history of sexuality, he very much relied on using ancient Greece as as his um, model to deconstruct mod- uh, modern political theory. Um, and Camille Paglia had this very scathing critique of Foucault that um, he really had no um, real knowledge of ancient Greek political thought. But you, you're not uh, qualified to jump in that debate there? Yeah, I'll, I'll stay away from that particular right. debate because I haven't read his History of Sexuality, you know, his big book. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't read that, so I won't comment. But, but I have read some others of his books, the archaeology of knowledge and other things. Um, and um, 
And I guess what I would what I would say is 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 this: um, Foucault has a conception of power that's not related to intentionality. Right. Right? In fact, what's distinctive about his view of power is that power is exercised, percolates through society, is is diffused through all mm-hmm. the uh, you might say um, veins and arteries and corpuscles of, of society, mm-hmm. but there's no intentionality guiding that power. Power is exercised not by particular agents for particular agendas, but there's just kind of a, diff- a diffuse power, social power of some kind. Um, and I find that very confusing because I think of power as always um, the exercise of, uh, of, of the intentions of some agent. That right. power is the ability of an agent to accomplish what you intend to accomplish, mm-hmm. um, and so power is always connected to agents and intentionality. Foucault just denies that, right? He just has a completely different con- concept yeah. of power, unrelated to agency and, and intentionality. And to yeah. me, that just doesn't make sense. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That comes from his sort of Althusserian structuralism and, and stuff in the background there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because actually, in the introductory essay in your book, you talk about power and justice, and um, that that to me is a is properly and um, and meant in no way critically, you know, an Aristotelian view of politics, which I actually um, also share, you know. But politics for Aristotle, I mean. Politics was the second part of ethics. It, yeah. It's connected, yeah. politics yeah. and ethics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, would you like to uh, expand on that for the listeners here about um, the importance of power and justice and their relationship? In, in sure, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to, yeah. Um, I mean, often today when people talk about politics, they talk about it only in terms of power, right? We talk about power politics and many political science textbooks will say, you know, politics is the study of power. Political science is the study of power, how it's used and how to gain power and who should have power and what the scope of power is and so on. So it's sort of become an almost mantra or consensus that political science is the, is the study of power. Um, so obviously power is related to politics. It's not that that's totally false. Um, a, a lot of political struggle and conflict is over power, who gets to exercise it, and for what reasons. Um, but it's, it, it seems to us that that's not an adequate understanding of, of politics. Politics isn't only power politics. Politics is also about fundamentally about justice, about what's right and wrong, good and bad, and, 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 and good and evil. Um, and um, <clears throat> so uh, we're trying to develop a conception of politics as the intersection of the quest for justice and the exercise of power. So, so politics is power that attempts to be justified and justice that's empowered, right? Yeah. Politics is the intersection of the quest for justice and the exercise of power. Um, so it's, yeah. not enough, it's not enough in politics just to have uh, theories of justice. Politics is not a debating, merely a debating society. Right, decisions have to be made, and, and coercion has to be enforced. Laws have to be enforced. So there is a power dimension to politics, 
But politics is not only about power. It's always about power used, uh, power that's been justified, power that's used for ends that are regarded as, as just. Um, so that's the conception of politics that we're trying to defend. And I think it's not exactly Aristotelian. Aristotle, as you say, and I think rightly, does talk about politics largely in terms of, of justice. Right? He mm-hmm. says we're the only political, truly political animal because we have language, and language enables us to argue about what's just and unjust, which animals don't. Um, Aristotle doesn't really bring in power in his sort of formal conceptualization of politics. Yeah. Now, of course, Machiavelli is is the theorist of power politics, right? Machiavelli right, is the exactly. theorist of, of power par excellence. He talks only, almost only about power. So our, our understanding of politics, you might say, is an attempt to blend Aristotle and Machiavelli to, to bring the dimension of justice uh, into relationship to the dimension of power. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you talk about the naive idealist and the naive cynic. In a sense, Aristotle could be the naive idealist and um, Machiavelli could be the naive cynic. Yeah, well put, well put. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you you mentioned that, and and it um, it brings up. I, I'm not sure if you're aware of the work by Alistair McIntyre after Virtue. Oh, okay. sure, yeah. I oh, I I love that book yeah. dearly, and um, he, yeah, he, he similarly he talks about you know uh, it's the whole of philosophy could be condensed to Aristotle versus versus Nietzsche. <laughs> right. Um, that would have made our book much shorter. <laughs> yeah. And um your uh and, and this is a very important uh, distinction you're making, like Aristotle and Machiavelli. And I I believe it was I believe Leo Strauss actually points to Machiavelli as being the beginning of modern um politics, partly because he um you know tears away the veil and, and the distinction between the esoteric and um exoteric. But but what's common to both uh Strauss and uh, Alistair McIntyre, which I'd be interested in how this fits into your work here, is that they see a definite divide between ancient thinkers and modern thinkers, right? And for, for McIntyre, it's it's almost impossible to understand ancient thinkers because we've lost so much of their underlying framework and uh, uh, something similar with, uh, with Strauss exists as well. Do you, do you see um, a sort of hard dividing line between the ancient and modern or do you think that you know the the ancient thought is you know once you have a good guide it's as easily accessible and under uh, understood by a modern mind um you know as a 19th century thinker or an early 20th century thinker oh definitely i think our book stresses kind of the continuity of themes and, and questions across the whole history of political philosophy. Our book is not structured around any kind of fundamental divide in the history of political thought or contrast between ancients and moderns. Um, most of those kinds of blunt contrasts uh, don't survive critical scrutiny. Um, you know, some famous, uh, and the, the, the Carlyles and their famous history of political philosophy in the West, the mm-hmm. six volumes, uh, they claim that the fundamental divide is between uh, Plato and Aristotle on the one hand, and then the Stoics, also ancient Greek philosophers, on the other. Right. Because right. Plato and Aristotle affirmed natural inequality of humans, mm-hmm. uh, whereas 
the Stoics already uh, in, in, in 200 BC, right, a long time ago, the Stoics had affirmed universal human equality. Mm-hmm. They see that as the fundamental divide in the history of political thought, a divide that takes place at about 250 BC. So, yeah. so any, and in other words, any issue you pick, you can, you can select your own fundamental divide um, anywhere along this whole long history. So I think it's kind of shallow to, to bluntly contrast ancients and moderns. Um, I think there is something uh, quite innovative in, in Machiavelli, um, why a lot of people call him the first modern political philosopher. Um, uh, I mean, Strauss, according to Leo Strauss, you know, the, the 20th century German-American um, political philosopher, according to Leo Strauss, what's most innovative about Machiavelli is that uh, he was the first explicit teacher of evil, yeah. right? That, that all political philosophers knew that politics in practice was um, full of moral vice and crime and uh, force and fraud and assassination and all sorts of wicked activity. Everyone's been aware that that's been the reality of political life. What's new in Machiavelli is he seems to endorse or recommend those tactics. Yeah. The ancients and medievals saw the same, right, wicked behavior and they denounced it. Machiavelli looks at that wicked behavior and seems to endorse it if, if it's done right, right? If violence and coercion are used uh, economically, are used efficiently, Machiavelli seems to endorse it. So, so according to Strauss, that's what makes Machiavelli the first modern is that he's explicitly endorsing wicked, uh, uh, evil means in politics. Um, yeah. Now, Quentin Skinner, another famous political historian of political thought, Skinner sees Machiavelli as innovator in quite a different way, but equally insightful. Skinner thinks that Machiavelli's key innovation is that he thinks that political conflict is actually a good thing. Right? The ancient and medieval thinkers um, operated on a premise of harmony was the ideal yeah. of political life. We want conquered and harmony. We want to all work together for the common good. Uh, Machiavelli actually seems to have innovated in seeing conflict, especially class conflict, uh, as good for a polity. Conflict actually, certain kinds of conflict anyway, can bring us closer together, can, can give us things in common, and can create a kind of dynamism in political life that's better than a sort of stale harmony. So... So Machiavelli sees value in in political conflict itself, and that may have been an innovation. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and interesting observation. Uh, and and not only have you, you know, not uh, had this divide between ancients and moderns, uh, you don't. You also don't have the traditional divides, as you mentioned earlier, about the West and the rest. Um, you know, you, you have uh, Confucius and, and I suppose even um, religious and secular thinking because you, you have, you know, Aquinas and Maimonides and Al-Farabi. Uh, so that that's um, very interesting and important, I think. Um, uh, it it expands because I, I suppose there's a kind of uh, enlightenment bias, if, if 
if you want to put it that way, in, in a lot of the um, uh, theories of, of political thought. And I, I don't know if that comes from um, uh, Graham Graham's uh, counter-enlightenment um, interests or, or from your own um, ancient um, uh, your your ancient scholarship uh, specialty, um, but it, it, was that a, uh, a? I would think that would have been a very conscious choice. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, can you I expand mean, uh, on that? What could be what could be an issue of more permanent importance than the conflicts between uh, religion and politics? Mm-hmm. And uh, you're right. There is a there is a kind of complacent enlightenment assumption that with the progress of science and reason, religion will just disappear and go away. So it's not a permanent problem. Um, mm-hmm. But we haven't seen that happening. <laughs> religion, yeah. keep, religion keeps coming back, uh, sometimes in very disturbing and frightening ways. Um, so the challenge that, uh, that religion poses to, to a, a, a civil or secular politics is, is profound and permanent. And that's why we thought we would provide the background for these contemporary conflicts uh, in some of the great thinkers of religion and politics, such as Al-Farabi and, and Maimonides and Aquinas. Right, right. Now, into you, your, um, you know, of, of your 30 thinkers, which, you know, are very wide ranging here, uh, some, some are standard people, Plato, Aristotle. I mean, you, you can't leave them out. Uh, Rousseau, Burke, um, but you have others like um, Mary Wal- uh, Wollstonecraft. Um, let's see who else. Well, well, Hannah Arendt, I, I suppose uh, Said Qutub. So um, let's say of the the standard people that you know are kind of expected in a in an anthology like this. Um, well, not an anthology in in an overview like this. Uh, would you say there were any new or surprising angles that uh, that you you provided either through your analysis of the work or by juxtaposing them with different people than you know than normally they are juxtaposed with? Yeah, yeah, good, good questions. Um, yeah, there's some s- sort of you might say strange bedfellows uh, in the book, pairs of of thinkers. Um, you know, one could compare, for instance, uh, in terms of Chinese thought, uh, Confucius and Mao. We have a chapter on Mao as well as Confucius. Yeah. And those represent, you know, radically different conceptions of, of politics, obviously, yet they're both Chinese. Um, so that that shows, again, the complexity of, um, of, of, of national cultures, of other national cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the Islamic side... We have both uh, Al Farabi, who uh, you know was 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 an optimist, you might say, uh, someone who was yeah. confident that Islam could absorb the best of uh, Western philosophy and, be, and and make it only stronger, make Islam only stronger. Um, whereas in Kateb, you see this 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 sort of fear, insecurity, kind of fear of, of Western philosophy and science, um, and an attempt to protect Islam from a dangerous contamination by Western philosophy and science. So here again, within Islam, we see two radically different stances toward yeah. science and philosophy. So that, that's a very interesting point. And, and, and it shows the, um, the tensions within 
traditions everywhere, not only the West, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, many naive Western thinkers, you know, uh, have monolithic views of, of other cultures. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Mao was, was a critic of Confucius. Uh, Absolutely right. Specifically. Absolutely yeah, you know, right. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, Kotob, I'm, you know, I'm not uh, very, very familiar with his work, but um, would he have specifically um, attacked Al-Farabi? Well, I, think, I don't know if, if he would by name because Al-Farabi right. has, you know, a lot of stature in, in, in exactly. Islam. That's why I'd be very um, interested, yeah. But certainly he it, it attacks Al-Farabi's legacy, um, mm-hmm. you know, that is the, the attempt to build a bridge to Western yeah. philosophy is something he rejects totally and wants to build an Islamic civilization based wholly on the Quran, particularly mm-hmm. his commentary on the Quran. Whereas Al-Farabi was a student not only of the Quran, but also of Plato and Aristotle and sought to yep. reconcile them. So, yeah, totally different. So, so I think what one strength of our books is, as you say, it, it shows that there's no sort of simple-minded Islamic point of view or Chinese point of view or Western point of view or even modern point of view, right? That these, these, these categories are, are always full of tension and, and conflicts. We attempt to both show that complexity, but also guide the reader to understand it in, in, in clear and accessible ways. Yeah, yeah. Now, of of I know um, uh, Graham had told me that you wrote uh, fifteen, and he wrote fifteen chapters, basically. Um, which which um, which philosophers do you enjoy the most? Which one? Yeah, you must have some favorites. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sort of scholar, uh, especially of, of Plato and Aristotle. Um, so those are certainly giants for me. Um, but I also have co-taught a course with uh, Dennis Washburn, who's a, a scholar here in our Asian Studies Department, uh, and we've taught a course here comparing Aristotle and Confucius. Right. Um, so I'm quite fond of. Confucius as a thinker and, uh, and interested in parallels between his thought and, and that of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are key thinkers. I also teach um, uh, Augustine and Aquinas. So in okay. my teaching, I'm, 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 I'm frequently teaching these great Christian theologians, Augustine and Aquinas. So those are mm-hmm. certainly close to my heart. Um, but in, in writing the book, it was real joy to rediscover some thinkers, um, you know, especially Alex de Tocqueville, the, the French aristocrat who visited America in 1830 mm-hmm. and uh, just made uh, splendid, brilliant observations and, and, and insights about American politics. Um, and then, in, 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 again, I, I got to write about um, uh, Gandhi, um, mm-hmm. who has a long time been a hero of mine, but I hadn't really explored his his writings in depth. So, so writing about him was 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 a very satisfying uh, delight. Uh, what a what a magnificent uh, person and thinker he was. Um, and then, as sort of sort of surprise, we, we were trying to figure out how to end the book, you know. And so, um, I made the case uh, to end with a an ecological thinker because it, it seems to me that. 
politics moving forward, both now and in the immediate future, is going to be centrally concerned with the ecological crisis. Um, not only global warming, but but even you could say this COVID pandemic is kind of a, an aspect of the ecological challenge that the, the modern world faces. So our relationship to nature uh, is going to be is going to loom large in the agenda of all political societies. So we thought it'd be good to end with a, a, a major thinker um, about ecology. And so it's Arne Ness, this Norwegian mountaineer, uh, we end the book with because he he coined the expression of deep ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was frustrated with what he thought was shallow ecology. Shallow ecology is is a is a concern for nature only insofar as you know we need to not poison ourselves to death with pollution. We need to conserve enough resources that we can uh, survive in the future, uh, and we obviously need to. Uh, preserve enough habitats so that uh, the the global ecosystem doesn't completely collapse. I mean, he considered those issues sort of obvious and shallow. Um, He wanted to push us toward a deep ecology, which is not just respecting nature insofar as it's convenient for us, but actually uh, thinking of nature as intrinsically valuable, as 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 an end in itself, so that we don't just control or make use of nature, but we actually acknowledge our dependence on nature and try to be good citizens of the global ecological system rather than attempt to be its masters. Um, so he, he poses a very radical challenge to uh, our conventional understandings of our relationship to nature. Yeah, yeah. And and um, thinking of it that way too, yes, certainly... Um we can go through much religious thought uh, and and early um, political thought and and find these deep questions about nature that uh, now I suppose in uh, deep ecology it it gets put to the forefront after I guess rele- being relegated to the back burner for centuries. Yeah, so yeah. that's a um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good uh, observation and way to uh, conclude your your survey of thinkers there. Let, let me ask you something as well. It'd be interesting to know, who do you think are the most misunderstood philosophers that you've covered here? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, you have Hayek, you have Nietzsche, so you, you have some, you have Marx, you, a lot of uh, yeah, yeah. Um, contenders, Machiavelli. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, think, um, I think typically the most misunderstood thinkers are the thinkers who... Um, already have a kind of legendary status mm-hmm. so that myths sort of uh, develop around them. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's typically, of course, the, often the most famous thinkers are the most misunderstood because they're so wrapped in their legends and myths that it's hard to actually penetrate to the, the, the true person behind the myth. Um, so in that case, I guess, um, you know, someone like uh, uh, Machiavelli is a good example. Because, right. Uh, to be, you know, Machiavellian uh, is a is a word in the English language. I mean, it, it, it's, he's so infamous that we've even uh, developed an adjective um, based on his name. Um, so he come, Machiavelli comes with this black legend attached that he's just this manipulative, devious, unscrupulous, immoral right operator. Um, 
And our chapter on Machiavelli really tries to, to puncture that black legend and, and, and get to the, the important uh, ideas of, 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 of the man and, and, and not just reduce him to this caricature. So, so, that, so he's, I think, a very misunderstood thinker. Of course, as you mentioned just now, Marx, another thinker with a huge legend, uh, huge mythic proportions, um, Marx is also quite misunderstood. Um, you know, and it, it, speaking of uh, Hannah Arendt, another thinker that we, we write, devote a chapter to, uh, Hannah Arendt was a good reader of political philosophy, in, including Marx, and uh, a reporter asked her in an interview uh, whether she, Hannah Arendt, favored capitalism. And she said, well, I like it a lot less than Marx did. Mm-hmm. And it actually turns out to be a very <laughs> insightful comment. Yeah. Because Marx was actually a great fan and proponent of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he didn't think he, capitalism was important because it was preparing the way for the next stage, which right he called either socialism or communism. But while we're in the phase, the historical phase of capitalism, we have to endorse, support, and affirm capitalism. It has to yeah. realize all of its potential before it, it will collapse and, and make way for the next economic system. So, yeah. so Marx was ironically, and, and it, his, communist, his Communist Manifesto uh, is full of the most extravagant praise of the achievement of, achievements of capitalism. It, it sounds like the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Absolutely. Um, That's absolutely right. So anyway, so there's some irony. So yeah, thinkers that have a, that have a legend or a myth around them uh, are typically quite misunderstood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, let, would you say that, uh, I mean, I, I would guess from your own um, uh, history uh, uh, of scholarship that you'd, you'd probably say Aristotle might uh, still be considered the wisest of them all. Is, is there anyone you would um, found <laughs> that way? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm an Aristotelian, so of course I'm going to see yeah. as, uh, as the, the wisest of all political thinkers. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, so um, are you, are you, have you worked with um, Graham uh, Gard on anything else before, or was this your first collaborative project? Oh, definitely our first and only collaborative project, and I'm happy to report that our friendship did survive the experience of co-authoring. <laughs> um, because you know it 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 can be t- tense at times, right? I mean, yeah, you both care absolutely. a lot about a project, and you put a lot of effort into it, and so there there were there were conflicts, but uh, but we, we we survived. Our friendships were stronger than ever. Um, Great. They were not planning any future collaborations, but uh, but this was a fun. The, the 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 idea of the book was Graham's. He deserves the the credit. He thought of the idea for a, a, a book. Uh, about the great political thinkers. And the, the kernel of his idea, which I think was, was quite appealing, was to, to, to blend, each chapter blends both the life and the thought of the thinker. So it's not just a abstract or tedious recitation of, you know, theories and ideas. Uh, every chapter provides a kind of biography of yeah. the life and times of these thinkers and their thought has it right has it grew out of of, of, of that life and times, um, so that combination of biography and and philosophy I think is quite appealing, 
And um, in fact, it's not our invention. This Steve Smith, one of the blurbs in the back of the book, Steve Smith compares our book to Plutarch's Lives. Right, yes. Plutarch, the, the great uh, ancient Greek philosopher and, and, and historian. Very high praise indeed. Yeah, his, <laughs> his, his, his books also combine uh, the life and, and thought of, of, of these figures. So, so we think that's a good, I, good recipe. As if I'm if I'm not mistaken, did, didn't he also sometimes um, compare two figures? Definitely parallel lives. Plutarch. Has, yeah, yeah. Has par- parallel that's parallel right. Lives. That's yeah, right. That's right. He does compare thinkers. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's, so, that's so, very interesting. So that's the, the the goal. The unachievable ideal is is at Plutarch's lives, um, but but we think that the, the book is, is is fun to read because of this unique blend of biography and philosophy. Yeah, I think so. It it kind of reminds me a little of I I don't know if you know Norman Cantor's book on uh, antiquity. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I yeah. That, He's a that, wonderful I, historian. Yeah. Oh, I love that book. That that is it's so um, well done. It gives you such a, uh, a, a in in such a slim volume an amazing overview of of uh, the ancient yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I get that same kind of uh, feeling looking through your book, you know, the way you you give this, you know, very, very approachable um, way of understanding these uh, people contextually. And, and as you said at the beginning, you know, I mean, if you have to read the source material, it can be very difficult sometimes, you know. And um, so it, it, it's, it's a really... It, it's a really good way uh, to to introduce people, and and I th- I think it's a you know a great companion, especially if you're a, a student. But you know, but if you're just someone who's who's interested in in so many of, of the ideas, because I mean we're living in in a time right now where so many ideas which um, which were taken for granted are now being uh, questioned, and I think uh, something. A book like this uh, is very, very useful um, in that context. Would you agree? Well, thanks very much. And uh, yeah, and our, at the end of the book, we have a guide to further reading. So, you know, now that, that readers will be introduced to these major thinkers, we provide them with uh, lists of their key works and, and, and works about them so that you can continue to explore the thinkers who, who most interest you. And yeah, you know, our, one of our first chapters on Plato is all about the role of expertise in politics. Plato thought that experts ought to run the society. And we're seeing now with the rise of populism, that that idea of the crucial role of expertise come under direct challenge. So I think that's just an example of how permanent these issues are, that even mm-hmm. thinkers 25 centuries ago are wrestling with the same questions of, of the role of expertise in politics that we're struggling with right now. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and there's something you said at the beginning too. I mean, I, I pointed out that your idea of um, permanent, you know, questions of, of permanent importance, but there's another thing that really resonates with me when you say, um, you know, these are really geniuses. And maybe sometimes when, when you're reading <laughs> some of these, you know, writers and, you know, uh, I, I get, I just get struck by their genius, and and, and it's it's amazing to that they left the books behind so we can sort of uh, 
commune across the centuries <laughs> you know, right. with, with these with these great minds you know and um yeah i i think that's it's very important to uh to introduce as many people as possible uh because you know what, what once you get into you know, once you get into it at that level there there, there are going to be a couple of people who really resonate with you and uh, and you've given such a broad range uh of of thinkers and and people that i'm sure uh people will find their own thinkers who will uh, resonate strongly with them yeah i would hope so this is a it's a really astonishing uh menagerie uh in terms of the, the diversity of the kinds of thinkers we, we treat. So it's hard to imagine that anyone wouldn't find some thinkers that, that greatly appeal to them out of this, this great variety. Yeah. So are you working on anything right now? And uh, I know this book was uh, published like a year ago now. Is that right? Almost a year. Yeah, that's right. It, it was, it was published early in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I've been I've been working away. I've 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 got, got a book that just came out. Um, well, it's just coming out this month. I mean, I just got the copies uh, sent oh. a couple of days ago, and it's it's called um, "Your Whole Life Beyond Childhood and Adulthood." So this is a defense of a holistic conception of human life. That oh is, wow! We often think of life as a sequence of stages from infancy, mm-hmm. adolescence. You know youth, adulthood, yeah. and old age. Uh, I argue that that conception of life as a sequence of stages really distorts our understanding of the unity of the human life and that we always live, right, at, in, in every time of our life, we always live in relationship to the whole of our lives. So right. children of children are looking forward to adulthood. They're not just trapped in childhood. They're mm-hmm. already thinking about what it'd be like to be an adult. Adults are constantly looking back at their own youth or childhood, measuring the distance they've traveled. Um, so it seems to me that the conception of stages is, is misleading, creates a lot of distortions in our thinking about human life. So I try to defend a holistic conception of, of, of human life in this book. Oh, that's, in, that's, that's very, very interesting. Is that, is that um, uh, philosophy, politics, theology, where, where does that... <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of a study in uh, human development that has okay. a, a biological, a psychological, and a narrative dimension. So our lives are unified both because we have a unified genome, mm-hmm. right? we have a biological unity, we have, yeah. we have a psychological unity based on memory, right? our, mm-hmm. the continuity of our memories gives us a psychological unity in our lives, and we have a narrative unity in our lives because we always tell stories about our lives. Um, our life is an ongoing narrative that we're constantly revising and updating as, as we as we experience new things. So, so yeah. I argue in the book that we have we have these three kinds of, of unity in our lives: biological, psychological, and narrative. That that's really really interesting. And again, I I have to point out how. Um, oppositional that is to the prevailing postmodern um you know dominance in in uh, much of academia where everything is supposed to be fragmented and uh, and fundamentally chaotic uh, you are yeah, arguing well said. for well, coherence well, that's right well said that and especially today we celebrate right the diversity of human identities you know mm-hmm. different racial sexual ethnic religious identities 
Um, my book is about what it is to be human. Yeah. And, and that's not as often discussed these days. But um, Absolutely. But I think it's I important think... to be reminded of our commonalities as human beings. That's right. And, and, and now this gets me into a... a... I wanted to close off, but but uh, this was a very interesting topic you brought up, and and it ties it in. Um, Alan Bloom's closing of the American Mind, his his book, which I think is a great book from the eighties. Um, one of the things I, I think he, he takes Leo Strauss's division between the ancients and moderns um, uh, seriously as well, and he, I think, the thing that for him uh, divides ancient thought and modern thought is the idea of the soul, whereas in modern thought, you don't talk about it anymore, whereas in ancient, um, in ancient political thought, it, it was, you know, metaphysics and the soul was pervasive. Yeah. Is, 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 does your work uh, touch on that? Um, well, certainly in terms of this book about uh, your whole life, um, yeah. because I'm so focused on uh, the psychological unity of human life, course gets directly to the issues of, of the human soul and uh, I try to give an, a, 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 again a kind of narrative account of how we develop selves by these ongoing stories we tell about our lives so yeah I think that's a useful contrast I think a lot of modern philosophers have thought that you can simply talk about um, about human bodies uh, yeah. rather than, than, than also about human souls. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's, of course, totally misleading because, as, as Aristotle would say, right, there, there is no body without a soul. That's we're, right. We're, 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 in soul, in, in, we're in souled bodies or embodied souls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it, it sounds um, very uh, similar to a lot of the themes that Jordan Peterson touches on. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's very nice. I really appreciate your taking the interest, and I found all your questions to be very insightful and well informed. Well, thanks very much. I I enjoyed it. So, uh, uh, good luck with you this book too, and um, perhaps uh, you can also have a discussion on that on the network as well. I would look forward to that. Well, thank you very much. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.